0: Romans chapter 10, and uh, we're going to read the first four verses of this chapter this morning. There's some things that I've just been considering as of late, uh, one of those being, we are as a church, first and foremost, our very, the very first uh, priority of this church is that the gospel would go forth. I believe that that's the purpose of, of of the church. Remember when Christ established His church with His apostles while He was on this earth? Before He left, He gave to them a commission, a commandment, uh, marching orders, if you will, and and we know that is the Great Commission that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That that is what we are as a church. We we may do other things. We may have other uh, uh, different. Uh, Things that we do in terms of our activities and and ways of trying to be a blessing to people in the community and all of those things. We may do different things, but really everything that we do is to be driven by this overarching commandment, this mission, that we are to go and preach the gospel. And while I know that we are not perfect in that and we have room to grow in that, it it is our desire. It's the reason that we. Uh, that we support missionaries around the world, and we give money so that they can go to foreign places and, and proclaim the gospel to people who've never heard it. But one of the things that is, I guess, a constant burden on my heart as I consider this is the fact that right in our own backyard, there are people who are ignorant of the gospel. Now, that the word ignorant uh, kind of has a bit of a a tone of harshness to it, perhaps, in, in today's vernacular. But the reality is to be ignorant simply means to be uneducated, to be unaware of certain truths, uninformed, if you will. And there are many people who are ignorant of the gospel. And one of the things that I never, ever want to be said is that anyone who sits here in this place under the preaching from this pulpit would be ignorant of the gospel, The Bible tells us in in, uh, Romans chapter 1, we won't take the time to go there, but in Romans 1, Paul is speaking, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He says, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be made right with God, it's going to be through the gospel. And so it's imperative that we know what the gospel is. And so I've been really praying about this and considering this over time and and uh, the Lord directed my attention to Romans chapter 10. If you're there, let's stand together one last time. As we read the first four verses of Romans 10, Paul here says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. He's speaking to the, about the Jewish people. He says, my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God... But not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. Let's pray. Father, as we take these next few moments and look into your word, What is needed is not my wisdom, my words. What's needed is not some kind of a fancy sermon, but what we need is to hear from you. And We know that you speak through your scriptures, through the word of God. And so I pray that today you would give us what is needed to rightly divide your word, to understand it, and Lord, to apply it. I pray that you would uh, give me clarity of thought and mind as I try to ...to walk your people through this passage and other passages of Scripture. And just help us, Lord, to see you today for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. In this short passage of Scripture that we just read... ...we we read of Paul's burden. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament... uh, ...under Holy Spirit inspiration. And as he's writing to... Uh, the the saints, the brethren, those who know the Lord Jesus. He's writing to those who are in Rome. And as he's speaking to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God. This is something that is of of utmost importance. it's It's a continual burden on my heart. It's something that I desire. It's something that I pray for. My prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, when Paul speaks of Israel, he's not talking about just the people who live within the the borders of the the nation of Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people, those who are descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those uh, to whom pertain the the covenants and promises of God, God's chosen people that he had given uh, the scriptures to. And he says, this is what I desire for them. This is what I want for them is that they would be saved. Now, think about that. These are God's chosen people. They are people that God uh, had, had, had given to them his law. He had given to them his covenants. Uh, it was the, the, the very people that he said, I will dwell among you and be with you. Uh, these were the people that had built the temple uh, uh, under, under the direction and leadership of the Lord. These were the people that knew what it was. Uh, to study the scriptures, to, to, to offer sacrifices. And now here we have Paul, and he's saying of them. Now remember, he is a Jew by birth as well. And he says, my desire for my people is that they would be saved. He says in verse number two, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. These people were very zealous for God. But that zeal, he says, is not according to knowledge. They don't know what they don't know. If you read of Paul's ministry in his life, you find that while he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and that's very clear in the scriptures, I just met with a few men this morning, and we were, were studying through the book of Galatians together, and, and, and we talked about the fact that Paul speaks of being the apostle to the uncircumcision, to the Gentiles. That's where his ministry primarily lies, and yet... While he was the apostle to the Gentiles, everywhere he went, the first place he would go was the synagogue, a meeting place of the Jews. Why? Well, I think it's because there was a continual burden on his heart for his people. And he said of these people that his desire to them, for them, and his prayer to God for them was that they would be saved. In another place, he said, I could wish myself accursed for my brethren according to the flesh, Israel, the Jews. I'd be willing to to actually take the punishment of their sin upon myself. I would wish myself a curse from Christ so that they could be saved. That's how deep his desire was that they would come to know God. It may seem strange. It certainly seems strange to me. How could these people... Uh, these, these people being the ones who gave us the, 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 the scriptures from Genesis all the way on through uh, the Old Testament to Malachi. These people who, uh, from whom came the prophets. These people who would give us most of the New Testament scriptures as well. These people are the ones who are in need of salvation. Why? Well, he says... They need salvation, they need to be made righteous, because though they are zealous for God, their zeal is not according to knowledge. Some people say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, God is only concerned with your heart. I've heard people say that. In fact, there's a very famous Evangelist that later on in his ministry, in his life, he basically said, You know, there are, there are people out there that don't even know the name of Christ and, the, and they don't know that Christ exists, but God sees their heart and, and they've got a love for God and those people will be saved. I want you to know, as nice and kind as that sounds, it's just not true. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts and uh, chapter 4, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says, He that cometh, uh, uh, that, that, that in order to come to, to the Father, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Hebrews 11 says, that, that he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, there are certain things that, which must be believed in order to get to God. And the way to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have salvation. You might be very passionate. You may be very zealous. You may be someone who desires to do right and to be right with God. But there may be a need for some knowledge there. Truth matters. It's not just about how sincere you are. It is possible to be absolutely sincere and yet to be sincerely wrong. And so here Paul, a a, a man with a great love and desire for his people, he says, I I bear them record. This is their testimony. They have a great zeal of God. They're zealous. They're religious. They, They are very careful to obey the law of Moses, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. And because they were lacking in knowledge, they were lacking in salvation. I want you to notice the outcome of this. They, I want you to see in verse number 3, righteousness rejected. Look what it says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Why is it that these people need to be saved? Well, because they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, again, if you were to look at the Jewish people, you would say, okay, they are extremely religious. Everything in their life is is dictated by the scriptures, by the Old Testament law. I mean, they they were faithful in observing the Sabbath day. They were faithful in observing the feast. They were very careful to not uh, touch anything unclean or do anything in violation of the law. How could you possibly say that they're ignorant of God's righteousness? Well, it wasn't that they were ignorant of God's expectation, but they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They they didn't realize that the God that they were worshiping was far more righteous and holy than they could ever be, and this kind of ignorance kept them from being saved. Why? Well, the ignorance to God's righteousness caused them to have a false confidence or false assurance in their own righteousness. Look at verse 3 again. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Because they didn't realize just how holy and righteous God is, they then were able to look at themselves and think that they were pretty good. Did you know that an ignorance of God's righteousness actually leads to a self-righteousness? Here's what happens, folks. When people base their morality or judge their morality based upon other people around them, they can look pretty good. Most of the time when I talk to someone about their soul, I will ask them if they believe that they are a good person. 99 out of 100 times, people believe themselves to be good, isn't that interesting'm I'm, I'm a good person. oh, I'm not perfect. I understand that, but overall I, I'm pretty good. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs that most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. I can tell you how good I am. I can tell you about all the good things that I do. I'm a nice guy. I'm easy to get along with. Some of you are shaking your head, no, you're not. you know. I'm kind. I'm generous. I mean, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm a, I'm a good guy. We talk like that, don't we? Oh, that's a good guy over there. What does God say? There's none righteous. No, not one. Well, how can that be? I mean, you, you never met my grandmother. She was the nicest, sweetest lady you'd ever meet. She didn't have a selfish bone in her body. She'd bend over backwards for anyone. She never broke a single law in her life. She never stole anything. She was always honest and told the truth. I mean, you what do we do? We compare ourselves among ourselves. The Bible says that that's not wise. When I was a kid, I remember being on the, the farm. I, my uncle had a farm. I kind of grew up around the dairy farm. And I remember at times running between the house... And the barn over and over and over again, and it seemed like every time I did it, I was just a little bit faster. And I was probably five or six years old, and I remember being convinced that I had superhuman speed. I mean, I was fast. And one day I, I remember telling my dad, Dad, watch how fast I can run. Has any parent ever heard this before? Look how fast I can run. And you watch those little legs just going and you think, yeah, they run about as fast as I walk. They run so fast. I remember one day telling my dad, dad, look how fast I can run. And then I said, hey, dad, you want to race? My dad raced me. And I'm telling you, I wasn't a quarter of the way from the house to the barn before he was there. You see, the issue was, I was convinced of how fast I was, but I wasn't measuring it against a realistic standard. I might think I'm really strong, but you put me up against a bodybuilder, and I'm going to look pretty weak. The, the, I might think I'm strong because I can arm wrestle everyone in my family and beat them. Easily. But you put me up against the right person, and all of a sudden I look like a, a very frail weakling, right? The issue is not uh, not how strong or weak we are, how fast or slow we are, the, uh, or, or even how good or bad we are. The issue is, are we comparing ourselves against the right standard? And friends, when we stand before God in judgment, by the way, every one of us will appear before the judgment of Christ. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment, you and I will stand before God one day, and we will not be judged in regard to how righteous we are compared to every other person on earth. God doesn't grade on a curve. There is one standard of righteousness God said be ye holy for I am holy and so what happens is when we remove God from the picture or we have a, a low view of God and misunderstand his righteousness and his holiness we actually can become deceived into believing we're pretty good We're not so bad. I mean, after all, look at that guy over there. I know I'm better than this person. And boy, these people, they act this way and live this way. I would never do that. I'm honest and fair. And I make sure that I do what I believe is right. The problem is we're going about to establish our own righteousness. Because we become ignorant of God's righteousness. We think, I'll be okay. But notice what this leads to. It says, verse 3, They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You know what self-righteousness does? It actually causes us to live in rebellion against God. You can be the most zealous, religious, passionate person about obeying the Bible, but if you have not submitted yourself to the righteousness of God, you have never accepted His sacrifice that He made for you, you are actually living in rebellion against God. You might think that you are pleasing God with your life, but if you are not, if you are not accepted, if you have not accepted Christ by faith and received His righteousness by faith, the Bible says that you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're at enmity with God. You are not in fellowship with Him. Well, how can that be? Well, because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, we might say, well, I know I'm not perfect. But, well, but you have to understand the, the measure, the standard is perfection. Let me me read to you a few things that the Bible has to say about the righteousness of God. We saw righteousness rejected. I want to show you righteousness revealed. The Bible says in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, speaking to God, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. God is so holy... He is honestly too holy to even look upon sin. Now, that doesn't mean that God is unaware of sin. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He sees. I mean, it's, this isn't saying that God doesn't see it. What, it. what it's saying is that God does not look upon it. Uh, sin is so disgusting and repulsive to God that, that his eyes are too pure to behold it. We say, well, you know. I know I've i probably told a lie once or twice in my life. And you know I, I I've probably looked at things that I that I shouldn't. But you know after all I'm human. You need to understand God is not human. And God looks at our sin and He says, I don't even want to I don't even want to look at that. Just a little side note here. Have you ever stopped to consider that to some degree holiness and righteousness doesn't only have to do with the things that we do that come out of us but the things that we allow to affect us. God looks away from sin. Can I just ask the question how often do you let things in to your eyes? Maybe you say well I don't participate in that kind of activity I'm talking things that you watch maybe on TV movies things of that nature I don't do those things Romans 1 brings condemnation not only to those who do such things but also those who take pleasure in them that do them God doesn't take pleasure in unrighteousness and iniquity and sin he's a purer eyes than that Hebrews 7 verse 26 speaking of Christ for such an high priest became us who is holy harmless undefiled listen to this separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now think about this. In heaven, there is no sin. In heaven, there is only righteousness and goodness, and, and, but Christ is higher than the heavens. 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 2, verse 22, who did no sin, speaking of Christ, neither was guile found in his mouth. He did no sin. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us he knew no sin. He knew no sin. Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured contradiction of sinners against himself. Do you realize that Jesus coming and living on this earth among us as sinful people that that was actually a contradiction to his very nature? That he would dwell among sinful men? Titus 1 tells us verse number 2 in hope of eternal life which God That cannot lie, promised before the world began. Did you know that God cannot lie? There are some things that God can't do. He's infinite, He is almighty, He's omnipotent, He can do anything, except there are some things He can't do. He can't lie. Why? Because it's against His very nature. Because God is pure, God is holy, God is righteous. Another thing he can't do, he can't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, we're told. James chapter 1 and verse 17, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Do you know what it means to vary? I've got uh, some power tools at home with variable speeds. What does that mean? It can change, it goes from slow to fast variable speed in God there is no variableness there is no changing God is God that's why when he revealed himself as he is he didn't say I was and he didn't say I will be He simply said I am I am that I am Jesus Jesus said I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I'm alive forevermore amen He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, which was and is and is to come. God is God. He is the same. And He never changes and He never lies and He he never sins. There, There is no sin in Him. He is pure and holy and just and good and righteous. And we might look at ourselves and say, I try to be all of those things. But let's be real honest, folks. There's not a one of us who is those things. Romans 3 in verse number 10 there's none righteous no not one verse 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God You have sinned and I have sinned We have broken God's law why does God's law matter because the law reveals to us the righteousness of God We have sinned against him are holy and perfect and righteous, and good creator. And our sin has actually made us detestable to God. That may sound strange. You say, well, God loves us. I understand God loves us, but you need to understand this, that God loves us so much that He was willing to do everything necessary to change us because we are not acceptable to God as we are. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says that our righteousnesses, the very best that we have to offer, are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. It's hard to, hard to fathom, because when we compare ourselves among ourselves, when we have a horizontal view, we say, well, it's not that big of a deal. We only say that when we're ignorant of God's righteousness. I want to show you a few examples, if I can, this morning of people who came into contact with God. Job, chapter 42. When people see God for who He is, what happens? Job 42. The Lord has been speaking to Job. Out of the whirlwind. And after... Really, 38 or 39 chapters of Job trying to justify himself and explain why he's been a a good man, a good person. God spends a few chapters telling him who God is. And I want you to notice in Job 42, verse number 5, Job makes an incredible statement. He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Job was a, an upright man. The Bible described him in, in chapter 1 as an upright man, one who feared God and eschewed evil. In other words, when evil came, he wanted to put it away. He wanted nothing to do with it because he feared God. He was an upright man. He offered sacrifices. We see him doing that. He prayed. But now that he has had this experience where, where he's been through this trial and now he, he's been wrestling with God and God has spoken to him, he says, okay, I I used to know of you because I had heard about you. But now my eyes have seen you. I've experienced you personally. Notice his response, verse number 6. Wherefore, because of this, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sometimes people teach today. One of the biggest problems that you have in life is self-esteem. You don't have a high enough self-esteem. Folks, (laughs) let me tell you something. Our our problem isn't that we have too, too low of a view of self. Our problem is we have too high of a view of self. We have too high of a view of self. Now, I understand that there are people out there that struggle with with self-deprecating thoughts and things of that nature. I, I want you to know there's an answer to that. There's a key in this. It's not about who you are. It's about who He is. And if you will receive Christ, you're accepted in Him. Do, do you know why I can walk through life confidently? Not because, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I'm strong. I'm tough. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do this. I'm important. I'm worthy. No, no, no. He's worthy. But that worthy and holy and righteous God lowered himself so that he could rescue me. And I am now identified as his child. I belong to him. I matter not because I matter, but because he matters and I mattered to him. I am who I am by the grace of God. He said, when I saw you, God, for who you are, it brought me understanding of who I am. When I see you for who you are, and then I see me for who I am, I don't like what I see. John, in Revelation 1, as he described seeing the Lord Jesus, walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and all of the the things as he described that vision, he said, I fell at his feet as dead. God told Moses that no man could see his glory. No man could see his face and live. We read this morning to open the service from Isaiah 6. I'd like to go there with you if you would turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 and verse number 1. Here we have a prophet Prophet of God, who from God had called him and used him, and from chapter 1 through chapter 5 is preaching. Preaching, Thus saith the Lord, this is the word of God. But look at verse number 1 of Isaiah 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Listen to this. Above it stood the seraphim. Seraphims are some, some sort of an angelic being. Each one had six wings. This is a little glimpse into some of the angels in heaven. Seraphims, six wings. What are those wings for? Man, they could fly fast with six wings. No, they only used two wings to fly. Because it says with twain, with two he covered his face. And with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. Wait a second. So here you have these angelic beings. By the way, there's no sin in seraphims and angels that are in heaven. They're not sinners. But in the presence of Almighty God, they have to cover their face. They cover their feet he is holy and righteous we sing the song crown him with many crowns and in that song there's a phrase no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight but downward bends his wandering eye at mysteries so bright in other words even the angels have to shield their face from the glory of god to some degree i'm just telling you folks god is high and holy Isaiah saw this, verse number 3, And one cried unto another, these seraphims, they're, they're crying unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Day and night, since the beginning of creation, The seraphims have flown around the throne day and night crying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And when Isaiah saw this, this great prophet of God... Notice, he didn't walk around, listen, I'm not saying this to be facetious, but I want you to think about this with me. He did not walk out of there with a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. That was not his response to the holiness of God. His response, this great prophet of God, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, one of the prophets that is quoted so much in the New Testament, What does he say in verse number 5? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Colon. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, I didn't think this about myself until I saw him for who he is. But now that I've seen him. What can I say? Woe is me. Woe is me. Can I ask you something, friend? Have you ever seen yourself for who you are in light of His righteousness? They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness. Righteousness. The measure, the standard, is not how good you can be or how good I can be. The measure is God and how holy He is. And friend, let me just make it real easy. None of us measure up. You say, well, what's the answer? What's the solution to this? Notice what he says here. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off, what? from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Without getting into all the specifics and details of this passage of Scripture, let me just say it to you this way. The solution to Isaiah's problem of his own wretchedness and wickedness in light of the righteousness of God, the solution didn't come from himself. He didn't say, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do as the best that I can so God will accept me. He didn't say that. He said, woe is me. What am I going to do? The solution came from off the altar. In other words, the, the, the problem of our wickedness and sin requires a heavenly solution. Romans 10, which is our text today, says that the problem with the, the nation of Israel, the Jews, that, that Paul was burdened about, he said that they... they're they're zealous for the things of God, but they don't know God. They're ignorant. They're they're unaware, uninformed. They don't see the righteousness of God, and therefore they've gone about to establish their own righteousness. They're trusting in themselves that they are righteous. And he says they've not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, but the last verse that we read in in Romans 10 was verse number 4, and here's what it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse number 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." Verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, God is righteous and holy, and we are not. We are not. And no degree of our own goodness could ever make us right with God. But there is a heavenly solution. There is righteousness available to you and me, And it's not obtained through the works of the law, through the works of our flesh. It is obtained through the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin for us. He made him to become sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Did you know that if you will receive Christ by faith, you will accept His forgiveness, that you can be made right with God, not by your own righteousness, but by His. I stand before you today with absolute confidence and on the authority of the Word of God that I am righteous before Him. Not because I am good, but because He died for me. Because I've placed my trust in Him and the blood of Christ has been applied to me so that now when God the Father looks at me, He sees His own Son... Who died for me. That's my righteousness. That's where my confidence lies. I've submitted myself unto the righteousness of God. Because I could never be righteous in myself. And friend you can't either. Can I ask you. Has there ever been a time in your life. Where you saw yourself as God sees you. Lost and condemned. And hell bound. And hell deserving. Realizing that you never could measure up. To the righteous standard that God has set for us. But even in your hopelessness, that there is a solution. And that solution is found only in Jesus. Not in our own works, not in our own efforts, not in our own goodness, but in Christ and Christ alone. And, and, And in that understanding and realization, you like Job said, I abhor myself and I repent, but I'm trusting in Christ for my righteousness. Have you ever called upon the name of the Lord, believed on Him, and received the gift of eternal life, the salvation He so freely offers. Friend, today, can I just admonish you and lovingly warn you, your righteousness won't do it. But the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. And just like we sang, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that He died for me.